Great to be with all of you this morning. Uh, we are uh, currently uh, exploring the book of Romans, or the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Super excited to jump back into that and continue our journey. We are exploring the book of Romans because we are in the book of Acts chronologically, and Paul is currently in the book of Acts writing the book of Romans to the church in Rome. And so we are with Paul sitting and exploring this extraordinary letter. And remember that this letter was written to the church in Rome to prepare the way for Paul to come to Rome, moving his headquarters from Antioch to Rome. Uh, in the writing of this letter, what Paul is doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is unpacking the intricacies and the beautiful simplicity of the gospel simultaneously. He's kind of showing us the big picture and the little teeny tiny details of the picture of what this redemptive reality of God is, how it functions, who He is, who we are, how we function in it. And so, in a very, very large picture, two things are happening in the book of Romans constantly. One is this, that in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, the Spirit of God, through Paul, is demonstrating to us, bringing clarity to us on the incredible magnitude and wonder of God's mercy. Essentially, the journey from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 11 should be that as we read, every paragraph we read, in addition to the last, uh, we have a greater clarity of the magnitude of the mercy of God, and so our minds become more and more blown as we move forward. That, that should be our expectation because in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, therefore, in view of all this mercy that you have been immersed in, here's what happens next. And so we should expect that every additional piece to the puzzle from 1 to the end of 11 is an expansion of the mercy of God as it relates to who we are and who He is and how this functions. The other thing that God is doing in the book of Romans through Paul is that the way that He is affecting this beautiful clarity of mercy is showing us how God's redemptive work and how God's love and grace and mercy for us affects our future, the yet to come, and how it affects our present. So he's not leaving us in one world or the other. Man, you can be lucky that your future is good even though today is terrible. Or this is all about today and it has nothing to do with the future. He's constantly doing both. And the way he does that is that he speaks to us about our position in Christ that affects our future, our eternal life. And that's a work of God on our behalf. And he talks about our practice in daily life as a result of our position, which is the work we get to participate in with God. And he's showing us constantly how this one is God's grace to us and the fact that we participate with him in our own journey of holiness and in the redemption of this world is an act of mercy on his part because he also empowers us not only to a future position that is no work of our own, but a present engagement or participation that he empowers us to do. So it's constantly coming back to, you get to do this because God is awesome. You get to do this because God is awesome. You get to be that because God is awesome. You get to do this because God is awesome. That's what this entire thing is about. So in the most recent parts of the book of Romans, the mercy of God that we have been uh, brought to and the clarity we've gained 
has been awesome. We, we came out of chapter 6 uh, where he started talking about uh, the, the implications to our great positional rescue. That was chapters 3, 4, and 5. And in chapter 6 he begins to say, since you are free now, uh, you get to live in freedom here. So don't be stupid and choose foolishness. And then as we come out of chapter 6 into 7, he showed us there that the external code of the law, which once governed um, the people of God, but it could not save them because their sinful nature or the virus of sin in us could not stand up to the righteousness of the law, that we have been released from that external code. So in chapters 4 and 5 and 6, there is the sense of you've been released from sin and death and you've been bound to righteousness and to God. In 7, it's been re- you've been released from the external code of the law, a legalistic process that you have to maintain to demonstrate righteousness, and you've been released from that. But in chapter 7, he says you're not only released from the external code, you have been bound now to something far greater than than the external code that could not save you. You have been bound to an internal reality that is not a code but a person, the Spirit of God. So in chapter 7, the mercy of God that we discover is that in our rescue through the work of Jesus, we are also recipients of God Himself in us, empowering us to things we could never do before because He's awesome. So now you get to the end of 7 and you're like, okay. What does it mean? How does it work? I mean, I have it, but like, I don't know. And then in chapter eight, he goes, you want to know what it means? You want to know what it means that you have the spirit of God? Okay, let's unpack. And chapter eight starts with positional again, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because what the law couldn't do and that it was weakened by our sinful nature, Christ did for us in dying. And then at chapter 8 all the way through 11, it talks about the receiving of the Spirit of God and what that all means. In chapter 8 verse 11, what does it say? The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now in you and I and He will give life to our mortal bodies. In other words, there is a promise of a future that is life. A future that is resurrection. A future that is not what it once was, which is death and destruction. And so we stand in verse 11 going, the first implication to the Spirit of God in me is that I am promised a life in eternity with my resurrection, not because of anything I've done, but because He is awesome again. And then what does He do? Positionally, that's where we stand in Christ. That's the result of our redemption. Now, in practice, and verse 12, he jumps into practice. That was last week, remember? Since we are in this position, now as we enter the world, why would we live by the flesh when we have the Spirit? It pulls back to going like this. What kind of a fool would have that kind of freedom and then go, I want to live in death. I want to do what I want. He's like, I, I get that, that's in, that, 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 that entices you, but, but the more you gain clarity on what the Spirit of God has done and what Christ has done, the more you ought to go, that's stupid. I'm going to live by the Spirit of God, by God's ways, not my own. So it's, he's, not, he's not saying you better. He's saying, why wouldn't you live in freedom now that you know what you know? And then he does what he always does. Just when you think he's telling me I have to live right, otherwise God's not going to like me. He goes, no, 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 no. Your practice has no bearing on your position. Let me say that again. Your practice has no bearing on your position, but your position 
makes all the difference in the world to your practice. Who you are will shape what you do. And so he goes, let's talk about who you are again. Remember what he said last week? We were once slaves to sin and death. Slaves to sin with the fruit of death. That was what we were indebted to. Indebted to sin and death. But we have been set free from that. And he starts, remember, by saying, we are debtors, but not to sin and death. Woo! That's good news. Who are we debtors to? We are debtors to God because he's rescued us. And so just when you think, I was once a slave to sin, which produced death. I am now a slave to God, which produces life. I'm thrilled for that, but I'm still a what? Slave. And so I'm indebted, and I have a master who should treat me like a slave. And what what does that chapter say? But he did not only set you free and bind you to himself as a slave to righteousness. He adopted you and I as sons and daughters of God. So we are not treated as slaves, but as children. We treat children very differently than slaves. I mean, some days they're kind of the same, but (laughs) most days very differently, right? Right? And then he says, wait for it. Wait for it. Not only are you positionally adopted into sonship with God, which is a mind-blowing thing that we could speak for the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years about and not come to the end of, but you are also heirs to God and heirs to all things that Christ is an heir to. So we are not only positionally sons and daughters, we are the recipients of all things that sons and daughters are recipients of, the full inheritance of God. And we ended there and we're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with that. There is our yet to come and our present reality. We know these things and yet we experience not the fullness of these things, but a part of them now. And then he says these words. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8, page 1045. If you're using one of the Bibles we uh, gave to you at the door, 1045 or Romans chapter 8 in verse 17, which is where we ended last week, verse 17. And it says this, and and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So that's where he was just like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. And then he writes these words, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That is the oddest statement considering what we're coming through here, right? He's he's unpacking for us sonship and, and we're heirs to things and he goes, provided, in other words, as long as, as long as you suffer with him that you may share also in his glory. Isn't that the oddest statement? Because it feels at, at first, at first glance, it feels like Paul is doing this. All this is yours as long as you do this. And, and that seems to be in opposition to everything Romans has done so far. There is no as long as you do this. So what on earth is is the Spirit of God laying out here uh, if he's saying, provided this is also true, then this will be true too. Very often you will find in the the scriptures, especially in, in the book of Romans, as we're laying out the realities of what it means to be a Christ follower, that very often there's gonna be this pause moment to say, as we struggle to figure out where we stand, because we are pretenders, us human beings. We can deceive ourselves, let alone the rest of the planet, right? As we do, there are going to be places where I'm going to have to say, obviously, as long as this is true, in other words, not as long as you do this, but if indeed the authenticity of your belonging is true. In other words, you have encountered the gospel, 
you have received Christ and you have the Spirit, then there are some things you can assume are going to be true. And those things we ought to see in a progression in your life, uh, in the realities of your life. That's why we often say, though you could sin and be saved, if you know Christ and you have the Spirit of God, will you live a life, the rest of your life, having no desire for righteousness and desiring all things dark? It's not possible. So if you have those things, then the question isn't, why are you doing that? The question is, maybe what you think you have, that you said some little prayer and stuck it in your back pocket, isn't actually an encounter with the gospel yet. So there are certain markers to our lives that say, if you know Christ and you have the Spirit, then here's some other things you're going to see in your life. I'm just telling you, you're going to see them. They're going to be part of your life. They will come progressively. They're going to be part of your life. And here's one of them. Provided that in life, you are suffering with Christ. In other words, you are not just suffering. You are participating in suffering with Jesus. What an odd thing. So hold on. I'm supposed to go suffer with Jesus. Where do I do this suffering? And, and bigger question, why do I have to suffer? Suffering feels like something opposed to God, doesn't it? God has rescued you. You're an heir to all things good. You're going to suffer. And you're like, I, I don't understand. And so here's the thing. What the Spirit of God is about to do is he's about to say, do you, do you want to understand why I made that statement? Because you see, in many ways, the rest of the New Testament unpacks that statement. It unpacks the beauty of God's mercy in allowing us not only to be recipients of a future glory, but to be participants in a present redemption. You see, one of the greatest things we will come to realize as we continue in our journey through Scripture is that we have received in the redemptive story of God not just a future of having our soul saved and our future redeemed, but a present purposed reality being invited back into the redemptive process with God. We are recipients of the gospel. We are participants in the gospel. And so here's what he's going to do. If you know Christ and you have the Spirit, you are heirs to all things yet to come. And you ought to know that right now things are going to change for you. You are going to begin to find yourself participating in the sufferings of Christ with him because you are an heir not only to future glory, but an heir to the great work of Jesus now. And here's why it includes suffering. And here's what I mean that you're going to suffer with Christ. Let's take a look. So he gets into it now. What did I mean by that and why should that be an expectation and an obvious marker of someone who knows Jesus and who has the Spirit of God? Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I love the way Paul starts this because he's about to get into a present reality that's going to be a little difficult to swallow. You with me? He's about to say part of the privilege of being an a, a, a heir to all things God is that while you're on this planet, there is going to be some difficulty. It's going to be hard. You don't just get to leave. So before we start getting into that, as we get into that, remember this. 
Once we talk about suffering and we talk about struggle and we talk about this planet and we talk about your time here and we talk about why you get to share with Christ in suffering, in other words, participate in suffering rather than just enduring it or avoiding it or running from it, why that is true, remember that as we get into it, don't get all discouraged. Don't go, oh no, that's terrible. Because the suffering that we will participate in on this planet, though heavy and overwhelming at times, cannot and will not ever be able to be compared to what is yet to come. In other words, when we compare the inheritance of our future glory to the inheritance of our present participation in suffering, it is like putting a giant 10,000 square foot house on one side of the scale and having a handful of pebbles on the other and throwing the pebbles on the scale going, any second now it'll tip the scales. Any second. It's just, it, it's not even worth future glory, 10,000 square foot home weighing sin, seven trillion pounds, present suffering, five pebbles in the hand. What do you think? What do you think? It's just not doing. You can't compare them. The future glory outweighs the present suffering even when the present suffering is more than we feel we can bear. That's where he starts. Isn't that a beautiful place to start? Now that we have that settled, let's talk suffering, okay? Let's do it. Why? Why is this present? Why is this part of what we inherit? Why is this a marker of what it means to know Jesus? What clarity does this bring? Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, our first clue as to why participating with Christ in suffering is going to be part of what makes us Christ followers, part of what we should expect if we know Jesus, right? Because the planet we live on, in the solar system we live in, in the universe that that solar system is in, with the people on the planet around us, and the fish and the birds and everything else, that all of that is not content. It's not moving in the right direction. It's not fulfilled. It's not, it's not beautiful and finished. It's not in a place where we look at it and go, oh my goodness, it's beautiful. Here's what it is. It constantly expresses its brokenness and insanity. Tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes and fires and, 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 and giant uh, um, uh, things in the sky that fall toward meteorites. That's what it was. I just watched a movie about a meteorite and someday it's coming and we're all going to die, right? You know the story. And so there's all this stuff going on and we're constantly looking at the universe and it's constantly unstable. It's, everything's un there's a stability to it that is sustaining it, but it's unstable. And so we're constantly like everything's not the way it ought to be. Have you ever felt that? Everything's not the way it ought to be. Should it be this way? Not so much, right? Here's what it's saying. We need to understand that all of creation, everything we observe is not as it should be. It is longing for something. What is all of creation? Well, there's only two categories that everything that exists falls into. Only two. There's no third category. Here are the two categories. Created or creator. Those are the two categories. There is no third category. Everything that exists is either creator or created. And if we're going to go into created, we're going to spend a very long time with a very long list. But if we go to creator, that's our easiest elimination right there. There is only one creator. He exists because he exists. He is in of himself and has always been and will always be 
in of himself an existence because he is creator. No one created him, he is. But he is the creator of what? Everything else that exists. So if it isn't God, it's part of this sentence. The creation longs for something. When we long for something, the word longing itself suggests a discontent, doesn't it? Doesn't it? If you are fully content, everything is as it should be, you long for nothing. But when you long for something, it means something is missing, something is broken, something is not as it should be. Creation longs for something. What does it long for? The revelation of the sons of God. That's an odd sentence, isn't it? Not as odd as you may think, because as Paul is unpacking the theological realities of the way that the redemptive story of God works, he often refers to the end revelation of our full redemption as the revealing of certain things. And one of the things he says will be revealed there is that all who are gods will be revealed in that time. In the process of the final judgments and the final redemptions, there will be a clarity as to who's who. Right, And so he says, at some point, this adoption that we know we are recipients of but have not yet fully realized, at the time that all the people of God realize and are revealed in their adoption, at that time, what will we know will have happened by then? Time is done. And the story is over in terms of time and space here on this planet. Because when all the sons of God are revealed... God has no need to endure this insanity any longer. So at the time that all the sons of God are revealed, it means that will be the time where the fullness of our redemption and all things redeemed will be realized. And what does all creation long for? That time. So what does that mean all creation is currently in? A broken state of instability and longing. Now he's going to unpack that further to give us a real picture of what he's talking about. Look at this. He remember he's building toward why do we suffer and why should we not just suffer but suffer with Christ rather than just enduring suffering. Why? Watch. Look at this. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a long and complicated sentence. So for the next four and a half hours, we're going to unpack this. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have that much time, but we could easily take it. So here's the deal, right? Let me try to simplify this sentence. Here's what he's saying. The reason all of creation is longing for a future yet to come and not content uh, in the present reality is because it has been subjected to something that has created the mess. It has been subjected to something that brought about discontent. And this something it's been subjected to is what is called here futility. I love this word futility. Don't you love that word? This is futile. I mean, there's something about that word. The words like that are powerful words because they move us from our regular language into something that we're trying to be specifically dramatic about. We have this word impossible in our, in our vocabulary, and we never use the word impossible the way it's supposed to be used because whenever we say something is impossible, we mean it's possible but difficult, right? I mean, this person is impossible. Well, not really. They're just really difficult, right? Or this task is impossible. Or, That's impossible. 
impossible. I can, what you really mean is it's probably possible, but it feels impossible. But when you use the word futile, you mean impossible. You don't mean difficult. When you say, this is futile, you go, there is no end to this that is good. No matter what I do, no matter how much I do it, the doing of what I'm doing is going to produce nothing, right? That's when we use the word futile. So the word futile is both about what is to come as well as what is present. If I know I am working at something that is futile, what does it make my working? Futile, right? Meaningless is a good way to put it. This work is meaningless because what I'm doing is going to get me nowhere. And we use the word futile. The creation was subjected to futility. It is in a process of existing that is leading to death and destruction, leading nowhere. We are, as a creation, moving in a direction, but the end to our direction is ridiculous. And so we, as Solomon will put it in, in Ecclesiastes, we are chasing after the wind. We are grabbing sand, right? We're like, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to live my life, build a legacy, die, and it's over. I mean, this is just no, there's, there's nothing. And creation's moving along to what? More tsunamis, right? I mean, it's just something about it doesn't feel right. It's been subjected to futility by the one who subjected it. Now, th this is tricky, okay? Who is the him that subjected this planet and all of creation to futility? There's a lot of arguments about this, okay? But there's two primary possibilities here. There's two schools of thought. Here they are, right? One school of thought, Adam and Eve. Thank you, Adam and Eve, again, for your awesomeness, right? You had every reason to choose God. You did not have the sin nature. You were not enticed. You knew the freedom of God totally. And some bozo comes and tells you uh, that if you eat the fruit, then you will know more than him. And you ignore his instruction and buy into it, as would I have or you have probably enticed enough, right? So we, we, they, they did it. They chose that. And in choosing that, what entered the story of all creation? Romans told us, sin. And it produced death. And the end of death, it means that whatever you're doing, if the end of what you're doing is death, then what are you doing? You're doing something that is futile, okay? So there is a legitimate possibility that this is saying Adam and Eve in subjecting creation to this insanity created futility because death entered the world and the only hope we have is the redemption of God. The other school of thought says no, the him is actually God because of the next part of the sentence, right? He uh, who subjected it to futility, not willingly, but he subjected it in hope that. So Adam certainly didn't have any hope that there would be, he didn't go, let's choose sin in the hope that God redeems sin and uh, saves us from corruption. He didn't have any corruption, so he didn't need to do that. So the school of thought there is, this is actually God's effect on creation as death comes in, affecting justice, and so the, what, is the, what is the justice or the payment for sin? Death. That's just justice, right? It's what's due. When righteousness calls due what is due and sinfulness is what is being called, death comes in play. And since the creation was subjected to death as an act of justice because of sin, then who affected, who affected futility on creation? You don't want to say it, do you? I'll say it for you. A good and loving God being just and right. But 
The beauty is he subjects us to futility. There requires then not just only death, but an ongoing journey toward death, right? So we find in Scripture many times where it says, and in specific form, even in the book of Romans, God patiently endures the ongoing journey of sin, which produces death, because he is doing what? He is redeeming the story, right? If he didn't patiently endure the insanity of sin which produces death, none of us would exist. Because at the flood, he wouldn't have pulled Noah out. He would have just killed everyone. Because at that time, remember what it said? Every thought and intention of mankind was evil. See, death was the inevitable quick end to sin. But God has allowed the ongoing journey of creation for thousands of years, despite the impact of sin, because he is in the process of saving creation from corruption. So that's the other school of thought. Which one is it? So, though we cannot fully know, here's what I would suggest. That both of those are in play. God subjects through justice the reality of death because of sin, and Adam and Eve participate in the affecting of that futility by their choice to bring about sin because they disobeyed God voluntarily. And so I would argue that though the hymn here is probably directly tied to God affecting justice and yet injustice affecting grace and mercy in patience for the sake of redemption, which is another beautiful display of how merciful he really is because he should have just let it all die, but he doesn't but it is also suggestive of the fact that humanity participated in the wonder of futility. And so here we sit. Here we sit. Do you understand why creation's broken? Do you understand why things don't work the way they're supposed to? Do you understand why suffering exists? Because this space we're in, the here and now, longs for something other than this because it is broken, and it is broken because it was subjected to sin, which then subjected it to death, which is an exercise of futility, but yet that futility continues not because it's futile, because the one who subjected it is hopeful, but not in the kind of hope like I hope, but absolutely certain, yet not seen yet, in its ultimate rescue, including ours. So, that was complex. Process that for the next six weeks, okay? You can go back and podcast and go, okay, I think I kind of get it. Look where it's going, though. What he's trying to show us. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What a beautiful picture. I mean, you couldn't pick a picture more relevant to mankind than this one, right? Childbirth. Let's talk about that for a second. Don't you love pregnancy? Isn't it beautiful? Of course it is. You see women that are pregnant, they radiate. They come in. What do we say when we see someone that's starting to show? And the, Congratulations. I mean, what an insanity. Congratulations on the misery that you're going to walk through for the next nine. I mean, what are we thinking, right? Oh, we're so happy for you. Happy for you? Your entire body is about to do what it's never meant to do. Shape out of shape. You're going to eat like a maniac because some creature inside of you is eating everything you're eating. And you're going to start changing shape. Your organs are going to be squished into places that don't belong. You're going to have pains you've never experienced. Your back's going to hurt. You're going to want to throw up most mornings for the first few months. And then you're going to be exhausted for the next few months. Only to get into the ninth month and walk around like this. And I've never 
never met a woman in all of my years in the ninth month of pregnancy, and they've said, I've been praying that he stays inside because I love this. (laughs) It's never happened. No one has ever gone, this is the best I've ever felt in my life. They're always like, I can't sleep. I can't move. I can't do anything. Get it out. (laughs) Pregnancy is not fun. So why on earth then do we think of it as so beautiful? Why do we, oh, congratulations. Why do we as husband and wife go, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Why does the woman go, as much as it's painful and terrible and horrid and, and inconvenient and everything else, it's so wonderful. Why? Why? Because of a hope. Not a fleeting hope, like, oh, I hope. Because we know something. We have not seen it, but we know it. Because we've seen it in others, Right? We know that when this little stretch is over, what is going to be present? Life. Life. New life. And so we endure the realities of pregnancy because we know that it produces life. Can you imagine if you were the very first woman ever pregnant? You'd never seen another woman pregnant in your life, and you were the very first human to do this. That would be scary, wouldn't it? You'd have no kind of, what's going on? It's, it's everything. And then about nine months in, you're like, how long does it last? Does it go on forever? I've been to the ER 19 times. They don't know what to tell me. Something's wrong. Until the baby's born, you would be panicking. But the reason you don't panic is because you know millions of other women have done this and nine months, sometimes nine and a half, sometimes eight and a half months in, the baby comes out and the whole thing goes away and you somewhat normalize, right? I understand. I've got a wife four times. It's hard. I have no idea how you all do it. Like, I, I, w- I wouldn't do it. You guys are awesome. So why? Why? Because of hope. Now, in this language, here's the crazy part. Paul doesn't speak to the pregnancy. As insane as the pregnancy is, he doesn't even say that our here and now is like a pregnancy. What does he say it's like? Childbirth, like the actual labor process. That's the nightmare. Nobody goes, you know what I'm most excited about? Is the hours of labor I will go through, at which point toward its end, I have to push this thing out. I can't wait, it's going to be awesome. No, we hold hands like, it's going to be okay. When you're a husband, like I was with my wife, and they train you, you know, uh, how to help your wife through the labor process. I mean, it's all about, look, she's going to panic. She's going to go nuts. She's going to want to kill you and everybody else and herself. It's all going to happen right there. The pain's going to be overwhelming. Here's what you do. You grab her hands. You look her in the eye. I mean, I remember the, the person that, that were, you look her in the eye. You, you can do this. You can, I mean, sometimes hours and you're like, you can do it. And you're thinking, I don't think we can do it, but I'm going to keep telling you that. It's an insane space because labor's crazy. It's very painful. Things happen. And, and you go through this, and then people are shouting at you, push, hang in there, breathe, push, breathe, push. And you're like, all you want to do is die and kill people. <laughs> Why do we not run out of the hospital screaming when it starts? Like, we should see women coming running out one at a time. I'm not doing this. It's too hard. <laughs> Why? Because there is a great hope that in this space, will be birthed new life. So we endure, not only endure, but wait now, we participate in the suffering, don't we? You don't, you don't just lay there, hope it's over soon. 
We participate. We participate in multiple different ways depending on the journey we take, but we participate. You have to do stuff. You have to stay focused. You have to be in the game. You have to engage. You can't just go, ah, whatever. You gotta be in. This is what childbirth was like during this time with Paul. Everything was about, look, I get it. It's hard, it's painful, it's crazy, but creation, everything we're living in, the here and now, the stage we're in is the labor stage. Labor includes lots of screaming, lots of suffering, lots of, lots of insane pain, lots of things you don't want. But what does it produce? Life. Now, can you imagine if you got into a perpetual state of labor? Not 12 hours, not 24, not 48, not six days, but this was your life every day. You, just, you were pregnant and you were in labor but there was no baby coming. That was, there was no, it just, that was what you did. You walked, you, ah, breathe, ah, breathe, but there's no baby coming. You just, that's how you need to live. Would that feel, would that feel like futility? It would. The only thing that makes the participation in suffering something you engage in is because you know what it will produce. If you don't know what it's going to produce, you don't participate in it, you either try to avoid it, you run from it, or you abandon ship, right? That's what you do. And what he's saying here is this. Once we know Jesus, once we have received the Holy Spirit, we are going to participate in future glory because that is our position. We are sons and daughters of God, adopted in and heirs to all things that is God. But you will also be participating then in what is here and now. This is not just about a future reality. The great mercy and grace of God is that he does not rescue us for the future and then leave us on planet earth to endure suffering and avoid suffering, run from suffering as much as we can until we die so we won't have any. Suffering is not what is on this planet to be avoided, abandoned. It is in fact something to be participated in if we know what we know. Just like a woman in labor knows what's coming, so she endures and participates. We too are like that. Look at this, verse 23. And not only the creation, now it's gonna focus. This is not only about what's going on around us. You ought to be able to observe once you know the reality of the gospel that all of this is not yet as it should be. So you are invited as I am, as participants in the gospel because we are recipients of the gospel. And as people full of the spirit, we are invited to engage in what is going on in this world to be light in the dark, right? We know that that's coming. We know that that's already been revealed. And now he says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, he's not suggesting we're not yet adopted as sons. He's suggesting we have not yet realized the fullness of this adoption. And what is the fullness of our adoption? When will we truly realize it? When verse 11 of chapter eight comes true, which is the promise of the spirit of God that he who raised Jesus from the dead will also what? Bring life to our mortal bodies. So he said here, at some point, aren't we all longing because we know what we know now for the day that we will experience the fullness of our adoption in the resurrection of our bodies, right? So what ought you and I to be longing for? That end, along with all of creation that knows that end is coming. See what Paul's doing here is saying this, I know you and me when we suffer our temptation 
is to either abandon ship. In other words, avoid, go away, create convenience, create comfort, do what you can, get away from it. Or within the suffering, just to give up, to bail, to go, where is God? What's going on? I'm done. I can't do it. That is our tendency because we are clinging to what is here and now. I want the suffering to go away because it is disrupting my current experience. Are you with me so far? Don't we always, when we start struggling or suffering, either because circumstances come our way we didn't pick, welcome to planet death, or we engage in mission with Jesus and stuff starts getting hard, welcome to planet death, don't we so often go, where is, where is God? Why is this happening to me? God, please make it go away. I just, I feel so overwhelmed and uncomfortable. Does it feel overwhelming? Yes, it's suffering. It ought to. Does it feel uncomfortable? Yes. But we try to get around it, away from it, because ultimately it's disrupting what? Our here and now, which reveals that we have forgotten that as people who know Jesus, where should our longings be? Here and now or somewhere yet to come? Somewhere yet to come where the fullness of our adoption we realized, which gives us the beautiful ability and perspective to not avoid the here and now suffering in our redemptive process or to not feel overwhelmed by the fact that God must be absent and must be punishing us because we're struggling, because we're so tied to wanting to be comfortable now that we think that God's grace is making us comfortable now when that is not always God's grace. We will be comfortable at times on this planet, which is probably, in my opinion, one of the most dangerous spaces for our soul, isn't it? Because when we get all super comfortable, what do we start doing? Oh, this place is so nice. The world is so beautiful, and I just want to stay. And we're like, planet death, life waiting. Now, not that comfort, comfort is bad. We should not have a poverty theology. We're like, just go make yourself suffer. That's not what God's saying. He's saying, if you live on this planet and you know me, and you know this planet, you are going to experience some suffering that's going to come your way that is not your choice. And you're going to choose some things that will create suffering because you're being redemptive. That is the grand privilege of being a participant in the redemptive process of God. And when you suffer, don't worry. Remember where you are here and now in the labor pains. And remember what those labor pains are producing or, or what they are showing will be produced. God is producing it. They are showing that we're on our way to a fully redeemed story. Now look at this. His mercy gets even better. For in this hope, we were saved. Into what hope? Into what hope were we saved? That we are sons and daughters of God, adopted and heirs to all things, and we will be resurrected by the Spirit. That's the hope into which we're saved. When we have that hope, just like we say, in the labor, the hope I have is what? That life is going to be born sometime in the next few hours or days, hopefully hours, right? That's our hope. It's not going to be nine months of labor. If you had to do that, hospital, nine months, labor. No! When you guys go into labor, you, you all do the same thing. Oh, I hope this is fast. And, and our hope is this. We know life is coming, so we endure the labor pains of this planet and our participation in them. We focus, we engage, we don't avoid. We trust that in our circumstances and our choices, if suffering comes with them, that that is just because planet is not as it should be. And we endure them as participants, not as people that run from them, because we know that we have a great hope. And our hope is our future resurrection as adoptions with sons. Now look at what he says here. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So we always do this, right? Well, how, 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 how do I know? I, hope that is seen isn't hope. 
wouldn't this be the oddest conversation? Let, let's say it's your birthday, and you've been really hoping to get a, something specific. So let's say you've wanted a, a drone, for example, or a new iPhone. I'm, I'm a guy, so it's electronic. For you all, you pick your little beautiful picture in your head. That's what I want for my birthday, right? So, so you come, and the, you've looked at the box. You've, you've, it's wrapped, but you've seen it, and it's about the right size. So you're pretty sure it is what you think it's going to be, right? I mean, you're pretty sure. You've shaken it, and you're like, oh, it totally feels like a Phantom 3 drone. I, I, I know it is. It's, it's so what I want, okay? And then you come, and you open the gift, and you open it up. And as you pull it out, it is the Phantom 3 drone. You're holding it in your hand. The box is there. You open the box. There it is. It's the real deal. And this is what you say. I totally hope I get one. And do you get that? And then, then someone goes, no, no, it's, it's yours. That, that you've opened the gift. You see it now. I know. I hope I get a drone. No, 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 no. no it, it is yours. You have it now. You don't have to hope anymore because your hope has turned into reality. I know. I'm so hopeful that I will get a drone. See, at some point you look at this person and go, this is, no. Stop hoping. Stop hoping. Why? Because you have it. See, you don't hope for something you have. You don't hope for something you see. Not because hope is, is, is bad there. It's just not necessary. When the baby's born, can you imagine? Labor and, uh, and the baby. Oh, I hope we have a child. You, you have the child. I hope my child will be born soon. It's born. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. What Paul's saying is just very simple. Hope, which is the very essence of where we live in this yet to come, cannot and will not exist when the yet to come has become the here and now, right? Because we will have what we now hope for. But our hope is not fleeting, like, oh my gosh, I hope, because just like a pregnancy, you're not like, oh my gosh, I, I hope that when we're done here, there'll actually be a child. You're like, no, no, there'll be a child, but I am also hopeful that it's coming soon, right? I know what's coming, but I don't yet see it. There are signs that make it tangible. I, I have something in me and it's moving and I'm going through labor. So the likelihood that a child is going to be born is super good, right? So I'm hopeful. In the same way, all of creation is in its labor with this great anticipation of what is yet to come. And we live in the here and now, which is the labor process. And we participate in suffering when it comes our way with great zeal instead of great fear and insecurity, with great confidence instead of, instead of a, a great sense of where is God, because we know what the here and now is, and we know what is yet to come. And hope by definition that we are called into is that we have not yet seen the, here to, the, 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 the yet to come. So this is our confidence. What is our confidence in? A hope that we have revealed to us in Scripture, demonstrated to us in creation, and secured in us by the Spirit of God. Now watch, watch this. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Oh, isn't that beautiful? I know you all are super patient when you wait for things yet to come. I know when your entire world's been disrupted at the office space that you say to yourself, I'm not going to let this bother me. I'm going to have no anxiety. I've just lost my job and I have no idea what I'm going to do, but that's okay because the yet to come, I'm patiently waiting for it. When your children come into your house and they disrupt everything, you go, it's okay, kids. You guys are awesome. You could try to disrupt my world, but you're not going to be able to do it because I patiently wait for the yet to come. I have no anxiety or fear of all your insanity. 
I know when you drive on the roads and people aren't doing what they're supposed to, and they're not driving above the speed limit by nine miles an hour, and, they, and they're in the single lane, and the, you go, you know what, it's okay, it's not going to bother me, because I patiently wait for the yet to come. This is not the kind of patience it's speaking of here. It's not saying, that would be like saying that the woman is in labor and everything's going nuts and she's holding your hand and she glances over to you every now and then going, it's really painful and I want to die, but I'm patiently waiting for the baby to come. (laughs) No, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying the woman doesn't get up off the bed and run screaming out of the hospital. You patiently endure. In other words, you finish the work, right? You stick to it. You participate. You focus. You get in the game even though you're screaming while you're doing it, right? This is not the kind of like, be patient, it's coming. It's because you know that you have this great hope. When it feels overwhelming and you can't do it, what do you do? You grab a hand and you scream at them, I can't do it. And they go, you can. And you keep going. You patiently endure. And what happens when it's so overwhelming, so crazy, that you literally don't even know what to do anymore? Then the next verse tells us what God tells us is this. If you can't patiently endure, then you don't belong to me and you're out. Watch. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Oh, wait, I was wrong. That's not what he said at all. Isn't the the mercy of God extraordinary? Here's what you should be like, considering your position and your great future hope. Here's what life could, should look like as you participate in suffering, whether it comes at you uh, that you didn't choose or because you're missional. Here's what that is like. And when you lose sight of all of that and you start going ballistic, what's going to happen? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Look at this. For we do not know what to pray for us as we ought, or we do not know what to pray for us as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I could unpack that for four hours again, but let me just say this about that, because this is what matters today about that. Outside of all the theological intricacies of that beautiful verse, here's what it is. When you and I are suffering on this planet of death because it is still in the labor pains waiting for the future and our hope that we have should be clear to us but it is overwhelmed by the pain and suffering of what we're going through just like a woman in the middle of labor screaming, I can't do it anymore. Get me out. Get it out. Put me down. Send me away. I can't. And we grab their hands and we look them in the eye and we say, I know it's hard but we're going to do this. The Spirit of God comes and grabs our hands and says, I know this is hard. But remember where we're at in the story. It's going to be hard for a little while. But soon enough, what will be born from this is life and redemption. Not because you're going to pull it off, but because I'm already pulling it off. And so while you don't know what to say or pray or how to make it through, I know exactly what to say, what to pray and how to get you through it. The Spirit of God is not just He who empowers us to be strong in suffering. It is He who comforts us when we're not strong in suffering. And he who makes the story happen for us, even when we don't think it ever will. Every woman in labor doesn't think it'll ever end. And then it does. And every human in the midst of suffering doesn't think it will ever end. And then it does. The Spirit of God is good to us. We are participants not only in future glory, 
but in present redemption. What a privilege. We participate with Christ in suffering if we belong to him. Because when suffering comes our way, either because it came, because of planet death, or we engaged in mission, we don't run from it, avoid it, become discouraged by it, or scream. What we do is say, God, I will participate in this, not because it's fun, but because I know that this is just part of labor that leads us to life. Do you see how knowing the gospel and knowing the mercy of God gives us perspective on how to live here and now? on planet death and invites us to mission. And then when we fail, what can we fall back on? The spirit of God in your weakness will be there for you. And he will pray what you don't know how to pray. The will of God for you and through you so that the redemptive story is not dependent on you and I, but on him, even though we participate in it. Welcome to the mercy of God. Let's pray. God, again, I, you're, you're just unbelievably good to us, allowing us in on the stories and yet protecting us while we're in them, giving us the privilege to participate and yet comforting us when we fail, bringing us in yet keeping us safe. God, there's so much you constantly show us that you do for us. Positionally, you rescue us for the future and then in practice, you empower us for the present. And when in the power of the Spirit, we take our eyes off of you, you bring us back. God, it's almost as though we get to participate without the, the chance of blowing it all, even though daily we may blow it in parts. God, your mercy is extraordinary. And your clarity is so beautiful to us that we now know the reason we suffer sometimes because of circumstances and sometimes because we choose to participate on mission in hard places is because things are not as they should be, because all of creation longs for something to, yet to come, because we are in the season of labor pains. So as things get too big for us and we're in the throes of the painful labor and we're thinking to ourselves, this will never end and I cannot do it. Spirit of God, would you grab us by the hand, look us in the eye, and say, the hope that you do not yet see is still yours and it is coming. This will be over and life will be born because I am life. And I pray with you and for you. And I, I know the will of God because I am God. Give us strength and endurance not just to endure suffering, but to participate with you in it because we belong to you and we know what is yet to come. We love you, Jesus.